In the hushed circles of the heretical and the hopeful, there are whispered myths of a dark place. A place overgrown, forgotten, lost to the moss and the mists. A coppery putrid decay clings and coils like malodorous vines to the ancient stones and rotted wood of these ruins. Ruins long since abandoned, save for those few barbaric enough to survive. Yet, in the oppressive, baited silence of this nameless damnation, something stirs, something hungry, something that needs to feed. Welcome to Apocrypha. The early April rainstorms soaked the parched earthen tongue of a land dried out from winter like the whole world had fallen off the wagon. It drummed against the ancient gnarled trees looming overhead and drip dropped onto a tiny wooden bird carved atop the walking stick. A small boy eyed that wooden bird, ducking and bobbing and weaving, as the thick, cloying mud sucked at his boots with every step. The jug-eared squire said that the bird had winked at him the other day. The boy knew that this was ridiculous and the older one was teasing him, but he felt it only sensible to remain vigilant. The walking stick was clutched firmly in the hand of a rather severe-looking old woman, enveloped in dull gray fullered wool. The abbess had a face that told a thousand stories. Deep-veined wrinkles spread across it like a tapestry of spiderwebs, while her lips vanished into the unforgiving determination of her set jaw. The jug-eared squire said that she had once withered a man into dust with a single, merciless glower. The boy knew that this was also ridiculous and the older one was teasing him again, but redoubled his vigilance nonetheless. Just beyond the dour edifice of the abbess, the boy's eyes caught on the rich, ruby redness of the wealthy lady's hood, like a beacon in the murky forest gloom. The oiled cloth covered most of her coiffure, still somehow miraculously intact despite the indignities of travel, and caressed against her high, lightly rouged cheekbones with each delicate step. Her lips were not pinched, but pursed in her exasperation, as though the weather could be charmed with a plump and pretty pout. Next to her walked her husband. Directly behind him, clearly assaulting them both with his finest sales pitch, came the merchant, the whole of his round moon face was writ large with desperate charisma. From the glint in the beady eyes that so obviously failed to sparkle, to the bared crescent of his mouth which never quite turned up at the ends, to the way he poked his elbow with arrogant familiarity to emphasize his points. The husband's nose twitched like a weasel with every one of the merchant's overloud guffaws. The unlikely collection journeyed together as a matter of circumstance and chance. 
Most folks moved through this strange and savage land in clustered groups. There was safety in numbers, or so they believed. They met in Dovishdane, that last haven of civilization where so many hopeful pilgrims embarked, pursuing suffering in the name of some esoteric and undefinable knowing. The small band of travelers moved through the colossal forest like flies flitting about a roasted suckling pig. Insignificant, fleeting, irritating. By early afternoon, the rain had died down, eventually settling into an unpleasant mist that bled through even the hardiest fabrics, seeping through the skin and condensating along the bones. As the afternoon waned, wisps of fog began to prowl along the immense roots, which half burrowed into the ground like knotted serpents. The day, filtered sickly and bleak by the misty rain and dense canopy, began to tinge with the murky lavender of twilight. The enormous trunks, their splintered bark mottled with silver grays and deep browns and vivid mossy greens, crept closer and closer together. At long last, they entered a small glade. Overhead, the vast branches wove together to form a high cathedral ceiling and afforded shelter. It was a popular waypoint for pilgrims, and the only one this deep into the central forest, so it was not surprising to find other travelers within already making camp. Although not so many as one might expect. There were few who braved the journey this early in the pilgrimage season. The healer was the first to greet the newcomers. He was a pale, slight man who moved with nervous quickness. His features were bland and unremarkable, save for his eyes, which were overly large and, while not vibrant or significant in color, possessed a sincerity and gentleness which made you trust him almost instantly. The woodsman was hard at work building a fire in the open stone pit which had been constructed where the overhead shelter was most concentrated. Night was fully upon them by the time the camp was set. The woodsman had at long last been successful, and they all eventually gathered around the flames, backs turned towards the inky darkness and whatever nocturnal creatures roamed within it. Dinner had been rushed, brown bread with dried fruit and jerky, but it had taken the painful edge off their hunger. The warmth of the fire restored some of their good humor, and the merchant's generous wineskin restored still more. Soon the group was gossiping, joking, and swapping stories, talking over one another in overlapping conversations and injecting into others with little quips and one-liners. It was the social circus which captivates adults and alienates children, and, true to form, the boy was soon annoyingly bored. He drifted away from the fire, though he was careful not to stray too far from the safety of the group, and soon found a sturdy stick some remnant from one of the primordial behemoths that lurked above them, which possessed the particular length and ideal springiness for imaginary swordplay. He grasped his prize by the knobbly hilt and held it aloft, testing its weight and balance with the gravity of a trained blacksmith. He gave it a test swing, and another, then flicked his wrist into a jab, fainted towards the right, and was soon consumed by his intense make-believe melee. 
The boy wasn't entirely sure how long he'd been thrashing that particular tree, only that he was definitely winning against the deciduous scoundrel, when the abbess's voice cut through his martial reverie like a serrated blade. You would be wise to show the trees more respect, boy. That last part was coded in caustic emphasis. She had not moved from her spot by the fire, nor did she raise her voice, but it had still been enough to silence the social circus he'd escaped from, and he realized that all eyes were on the two of them. The boy gulped. I'm not doing any harm. They're just trees, ma'am. The abbess's eyes bored into him, as did the carved wooden eyes of the bird atop the walking stick still clutched in one clawed hand. Just trees. Do you know the story of this forest? You are not the first to dismiss our sylvan brethren, but we reap what we sow, child, and such arrogance will be broken on the wheel. The boy shivered and drew closer to the fire. The tension lay heavily on the air, but still no one spoke. Baron Hanneberg was not an evil man by all accounts. He was simply eager. Eager to make an impression, eager to be impressive. And his tragedy was that he was so very unremarkable. There was absolutely nothing noteworthy about him. Aside from his inheritance, which was prodigious and unexpected, arriving as it did due to the sad passing of his elderly father and the unfortunate death of his older brother at a devastatingly early age. He had no other family, and his sheer mediocrity had prevented any of the real substantial social connections which would have been a comfort at such times. So the Baron was left alone in his mundanity. It might have been a blessing to avoid the fortune-hunting jackals that so often come sniffing around such easy prey, except that he would have preferred that. He didn't care about the money, he just wanted the company. This forest was not always the wild, predatory place that surrounds us now. It was once a place of culture and refinement. There was city and society and innovation and enlightenment and all the gilded imperfections and flagrant aristocracy which accompanies that which we deem civilization. Can you picture it, boy? The clattering of hooves on the stone streets, awash in lantern light, as the lonely baron gazes longingly into the dazzling radiance of bountiful dinners and resplendent galas and intimate receptions, just visible through windows, thrown open doorways, or gated garden walls. The black wilderness around the boy grew feral against the old abbess's conjurings, and the full weight of the knight's menace fell on him. He was very small, and there were many things he could not do. An interesting man would have turned his solitary suffering into some insightful piece of aspirational wisdom. 
But Baron Henneberg was not an interesting man. Not in his person, nor in his logic. He could not comprehend the intangibility of what draws people in and bonds them together. Instead, he saw only the concrete and the direct. He saw the houses, not the homes. So that is what he focused on. The Baron dedicated himself to building a new house. An impressive house. A remarkable house. He spent a fortune on architects and craftsmen. He consulted experts in any field he felt might make his house more magnificent. He became obsessed. His house would be a masterpiece. Everyone would talk about it. Talk about him. People would come from all over just to see it. And then he became fanatical. It didn't just become his life, it became his soul. His lavish ambition required an awful lot of raw material. All around the Hanneberg estate, there was the rasping of saws and chopping of axes and resounding crash of slaughtered trees. The sound resonated for miles. Nearby villages muttered resentfully but could not afford to offend a wealthy patron. But there were other, older, more primal things that slept in these lands. Things which were awoken by the Baron's careless din. Things which were much less willing to forgive than the villagers. Look around you, boy. It does not do to underestimate nature. These trees have been here long before us. Been here when mankind itself was nothing but dust and clay. And they will be here long after us. They will be here when mankind itself returns to that dust and clay. The boy knew that this was ridiculous and the aged crone was taunting him. But the dread was building in his rapidly beating heart nonetheless. And deep within that heart, he was certain there was something out there. Watching them. After weeks and weeks of pillaging the land, the Baron did finally get his wish. Everyone started talking about him. Or rather, they started talking about the sudden, deafening silence of his villa, of the terrified workers that fled his grounds babbling incoherently and refusing to ever return, of the hair-raising, piercing screams that sliced through the night and severed the dreams of any who dared to sleep within a few miles of the estate. They did not immediately know what had happened to the Baron. When the villagers finally worked up the courage to investigate the grounds, there was no sign of violence or hint of struggle. It was laid with all the trappings of an ordinary day cut short. Half-eaten breakfast in the hall, 
tools strewn about as though casually set down for a moment's respite. There was even laundry hanging in the breeze. The Baron was nowhere to be found. They feasted on the titillating mystery of it all for days. Theories abounded, scandals were stirred, people were fascinated. Poor man. He was more notable in his absence than he could ever hope to be with his presence. Within days of his disappearance, the estate was soon crawling with thrill-seekers, like ants. And then, one of them was found brutally dismembered and splattered across the solarium. Another was found torn in two, the bottom half speared topsy-turvy onto the marble trident of a mermaid fountain, while the head and parts of the spine were found floating in the water below. The rest appeared to have been eaten. Fear gripped the villages and the people petitioned for aid. The city sent heavily armed knights, and that's when they discovered what had happened to the Baron. The boy's skin crawled. Was that rustling behind him? His breath shortened. He couldn't quite make it out. What was that? He knew something was moving out there. The forest's vengeance erupted from the trees in thunderous, roaring fury. The juggernaut of matted fur and vicious claws and razor tusks. The knights did not stand a chance against it. One tightened the fist toppled them like toy soldiers. The other scooped one up and devoured him, armor and all, like a chestnut still in the shell. Its immense muscles rippled through the massacre, and with every shift, the decomposing skin which hung from it in patches like sails undulated revoltingly. The smell that accompanied this monstrous beast was indescribable. Like the sulfurous smell of death and the fetid odor of wild things and a cloying, fungal stench of putrefaction. It snuffled and fed on the corpses of the knights, its bony, bifurcated antlers bobbing and weaving. And there, right at the apex of its hideous skull, in some grotesque comedy, sat a too small feathered cap. The Baron's feathered cap. The villagers fled in panic. The estate was closed off. They posted armed guards to prevent trespassers from going in and prayed that whatever was once the Baron did not come out. The carcass of that palatial house was left to rot, collapse, decay. The forest reclaimed its bones, and now there's nothing left of Baron Henneberg's soul. A twig snapped, and the boy jumped. Now there's nothing left of any of them. No villagers, or villages, or city, or society. Nothing but this. This forest still remains. 
And they say it still guards here, craving flesh, seeking retribution. Her words dropped like stones into the intense quiet of the camp. The rustling had grown closer. The boy felt the foul breath of the guardian beast upon his neck. It was behind him, in the woods, waiting. The boy wanted to turn around, but the boy did not want to look. He knew what he would see. A musty smell filled his nostrils in that agonizing moment of indecision. And then its claws dug into the boy's shoulders. Its fearsome roar assaulted his ears. He was dragged backwards, flailing wildly and shrieking in pure terror. He knew the bite was coming, knew one rancid tusk would plunge into his shoulder, felt its pain when the roar abruptly turned into laughter. And he looked up into the smug face of the jug-eared squire. The relief left him jelly-legged and quivering. The hollow space the terror left quickly filled with embarrassment and anger. The boy shrugged away from the squire. He could hear the others admonishing the older boy half-heartedly, their amusement weakening its impact. Hot tears prickled in his eyes and he stalked away towards his bedroom. He crawled in and curled up, turned away from the group at the fire. The social circus slowly returned, diminished somewhat by the late hour, and the boy softened to the lullaby of muted conversation. Eventually, he dozed off. Those around the fire heard a resounding, echoing roar. wasn't fair. Oscar thought while he checked the temperature. Why must he always be the bad guy? He draped the brightly colored silk robe upon a broken pillar, its pattern of gentle lavenders and bold fuchsias rippling across the aged, jagged stone. He gave a quick, gasped inhalation as he stepped one foot into the bath, followed by a long, blissful sigh. As he sank down beneath the steam, he was so tired of people putting their emotional needs and burdens on him. His elbows angled over the sides of the tub, and he let his long, lithe fingers trail in the thick claret of his bath. I have needs too, he thought petulantly. One arm casually swung down and grabbed the bottle of wine he'd left breathing against one of the deteriorating clawed feet. Only the good whores get fucked. He raised the bottle in mock salute and then tipped it by its neck and drank generously. That's what I get for being such a bleeding heart. Oscar scooped up a handful of syrupy scarlet from the tub with one hand and giggled. The wine was a good vintage, velvety with notes of black and red currants, the slightest citrus to brighten it, and rich blackberries. Wonderfully mouth-watering acidity. It complemented the acrid, coppery fumes of his bath to perfection. 
candlelight flickered, and the purple twilight faded to inky blue-black as Oscar dozed, drinking his wine, soaking. Blood really does wonders for your skin. He finished his bottle and reached automatically for the second, left where the opposite clawed foot would have been had it not broken off long ago, and where now rested a large stone, wedged to keep it all from listing to one side. His mind drifted back over the past week. The problems, the frustrations. No, no. Let it go. Inhale. One, two, three, four, five. Exhale. One, two, three, four, five. Inhale. One, two, three, four, five. Exhale. One, two, three, four, five. He continued the breathing exercises, letting the tension in his shoulders loosen, easing the tight clenching of his jaw, quieting his anxious mind. And he drank deeply at regular intervals. He was disappointed when the second bottle emptied so quickly. It really is a shame. I rarely get this sort of time for myself. And self-care is so important. <sighs> I'd sell my soul for another bottle of wine. Would you? Came a cryptic voice from unsettlingly close. Oscar gasped and sat upright in his bath, sloshing and splattering blood all over the sides of the discolored porcelain tub. Said tub sat in the open air of what could barely qualify as a clearing. The ruins of what might have once been an actual bathroom lay strewn about, covered with puddled candle wax and a few jars of scented oils, and the dense encroaching overgrowth of the surrounding forest. Oscar saw the eyes first, shrouded in the darkness of that overgrowth. They seemed to glow. One a murky marbling of amber, and the other a cloudy vortex of sky blue. I beg your pardon? Oscar was a little affronted as his eyes adjusted, and he found himself staring at a strange little man wearing animal skins and crouching like a grizzled bunny in the foliage. A jackalope, the absurd thought popped into his brain from absolute nothingness, but with complete certainty. Would you sell your soul? The jackalope insisted. A normal man would not have intruded so rudely upon another's me-time, and a normal man might have perhaps been frightened or alarmed by the intrusion. But in case it was not already apparent, these were not normal men. There were no normal men in Apocrypha. And so Oscar pursed his lips and thought for a moment. I rather think I would. <laughs> Seems to me like you undervalue your soul. Oscar raised a toe, dripping and bloody, and examined it for a second. Seems to me like you undervalue my wine. When the jackalope did not immediately respond, Oscar glanced over at him. The jackalope stared back wordlessly. Oscar's brain wanted to call the jackalope stoic, but there was something eerily wrong with that description. It wasn't stoic. It was more that no part of him ever seemed to move. At all. No matter twitch or shift or smallest breath of life. Not even those eyes. Oscar suddenly realized he'd never actually seen the jackalope speak. Level with me. Have you ever tried a good wine? 
Oscar kept his eyes on the creature as it slowly cocked its head to one side. Nothing else moved about it, except he thought the jackalope might be smirking. Just not with its mouth. With those eyes. Like a peppery, full-bodied red with some complexity to it. One that undresses your taste buds with delightfully chewy tannins and leaves a bitter little sparkle on your tongue. Oscar continued on too quickly, as if to distract himself from his unease. Have you ever tried a good soon? Now Oscar knew the jackalope was smirking, though its mouth still did not move. Slowly, it cocked its head back the other way, sphinx-like. Like a spicy debauched blonde with some light experience to it, one that teases you with rich sybaritic flavors and leaves you with the light acidic tingle too much self-indulgence. Oscar draped himself over the edge of the bath languidly, little rivulets of crimson tracing delicate patterns over his shoulders and down his arms. Tiny dots of sticky blood dried on his cheeks like a light smattering of freckles. Well... The word oozed from him. Wasn't that just a tantalizing piece of poetry, both arousing and disturbing? Lucky for me, I'm into that. His eyes were nearly black as he assessed the jackalope. Goosebumps began to prickle along his skin as the chilly night air nibbled at it. The jackalope did not react. Sighing wistfully, Oscar flounced extravagantly back into his bath, the blood spraying out to all sides with a violent squelch. All this excitement is just making me thirstier. He closed his eyes and pouted. I've never been one for delayed gratification. What use is my soul right now? Life is about the bodily pleasures, and death could be ages away. He drew the words out with a flourish. The jackalope's dry chuckle came from much closer. <laughs> Oscar started again. He blinked his eyes open, stubbornly nonchalant. But the creature was gone. Instead, sitting on the strange straggles of grass a few feet from his tub was a single, distinctive bottle. Oscar raised an eyebrow and appraised the offering. A notable vintage. Rare and flatteringly expensive. He looked around again, peering into the foliage, but there was no sign of the strange thing which had disturbed his path. It's a deal, he said to the empty darkness, stretching his arms toward the bottle, leaning out and over the tub. He couldn't quite seem to reach it from where he sat. He shifted over, straining to extend himself just a bit further. His fingers just barely brushed along the glass. Oscar threw his head back with a frustrated exhalation of air. One would think that selling a soul would at least afford you free delivery. He ran a hand through his hair, the blood causing it to stick up and out wildly. Then he grasped the edges of the tub and pushed himself up to his feet with a sickly, muddy gurgle. The thing that anyone who's dealt with blood in large quantities will tell you is it's decidedly not water. Blood is a much trickier liquid, thicker, more cloying, and it becomes glutinous as it cools. And it doesn't cool evenly, especially in a bathtub. A slippery porcelain 
bathtub. It's perilously easy to misjudge a slippery porcelain bathtub full of erratically cooling blood. Oscar stood for a moment, wavering slightly, the two previous bottles of wine rushing to his head all at once and making him unsteady on his feet. He shuffled a foot forward, attempting to gain firmer ground, the droplets of blood cooling as they ran down his naked form, leaving a patchwork of bright crimson and dark maroon across the deep pinks stained into his skin. And then a shift, a more confident step over the lip of the bath. And he was gone. A red geyser, the snapping of bone, the thudding of his skull, and then blood rained heavily back down on his now still form, his neck at an unnaturally harsh angle, the returning blood beginning to pool in his unseeing eyes. Today's sacrifice was blind. Maybe this was a blessing. Aruguk thought as she dragged the old man along behind her towards the sprawling ruins. The rhythmic snaking sounds of her tribesmen, whisper chanting, rose around them, and from far off came a response. A monstrous, screeching laugh. She could feel the sacrifices shuddering vibrate along the coarse rope. Maybe not such a blessing after all. Nothing could make this death a blessing. Harukuk knotted the rope around the iron bar in the center of the ritual circle and tightened it with a vicious yank. The sacrifice was babbling now, though she could not hear it. The melodic drone of the whisper chanting around them filled her ears completely. A surreal accent against the tears that poured from the milky whites of those unseeing, doomed eyes and the white foam spray of spittle flecking the old man's patchy beard. She turned and walked away. It would not be long now. The droning chant faded as the natives drew back, disappearing into the jungle that surrounded the crumbling arena. It was not wise to be too close during a feeding. The old man snorted bitterly through his tears. <laughs> One would think the religious would have more faith. But their bone god had neither discretion nor restraint, and though the Ocean temple preached incessantly about the honor and sacrifice, they did not seem eager for that honor themselves. The dark god moved in ominous silence. No thudding stomps, no crashing trees. Its only herald was the tinkling chime of bone against bone. The old man suffocated in his darkness, the wild pounding of his heart drowning his ears, and the crushing fear freezing him down to the marrow. Well... The voice was at once booming and seductive, drawling the L out with a sensuous tongue. This is a bit anticlimactic. The breathy enticement in the voice gave way to a whimpering moan of pain and the grinding crunch of bone and muscle. Uh-oh, 
We know how you get without your climax. The crunch of bone gave way to a squelching giggle and the high-piercing pitch of the insane. (laughs) It always makes you a little on edge. The disconcerting cackle abruptly morphed into a shrieking howl and more bone-grinding cacophony. (laughs) Quiet. The voice was husky and deep and growled with impatient authority. Our influence appears to be waning with this congregation. The growl sharpened with malice. How shall I remedy this lack of respect? The grating sound of bone and sinew came again, nearly overwhelming the angry groan that slid back to high-pitched insanity. Oh, please let me make one of my lovely meat puppets. The old man flinched as two razor-sharp claws pinched his skull and wailed as the claws wrenched it in an erratic and unnatural bobbing loop. The insane voice, already high-pitched, took on an even shriller, mocking tone. I'm a pathetic piece of flesh and my entire people will be ripped apart if they don't start serving better appetizers. (laughs) It dissolved into maniacal giggling and the dazed old man felt hot blood dripping down from his temples. Again came the resounding cracks and groans of readjusting bone as the authoritative one returned. I said quiet! It gave a rattled sigh of exasperation and traced a line down the exposed cheek of the hyperventilating old man. A razor-thin line of crimson welled up in the claw's wake. What we need is a messenger. Someone who can adequately convey our disappointment. The now familiar cacophony of bone and grinding cartilage sounded as the breathy voice returned. Warnings are so boring. I say we just kill them all and feast on their carcasses. We can always find more of the nasty beasts. Let's gorge ourselves and move on! The cackling was particularly gleeful this time, nearly drowning out the grating bone as the insane voice chanted. <laughs> beastie feasty crunch munch scrunch feasty beastie rom stomp chomp! Ah! Rambling in rhyme until squealing with pain as the angry authoritative one returned. Manual hunting is inefficient and wasteful. It snapped, then sighed again. But if it's our only option! Perhaps sensing his only chance at survival slipping away, the old man found voice, managing to blubber out. I, I, oh, oh, dark, dark ones. I could, I, I will be your voice, your messenger. Authoritative voice dripped with derision. Can you manage to get it out, you miserable meat sack? The old man's heaving, gulping breath sobbed out at hitched intervals as he desperately attempted to steady his voice. His resolution was met with a chilling silence, which lasted just long enough to undo his hard-fought composure and he collapsed back into despaired sniveling as a ponderous growl rumbled from within the bone god's chest. Well, I do hate a buffet. It's so very pedestrian and crude. Sit down, serve dinner is much more befitting a god, wouldn't you agree? The man's hysterical agreement could barely be understood. 
through the continued weeping. Good then. The authoritative one's patience was obviously at the end of its tether. Then perhaps we should discuss how we plan to execute this little plan. A single claw traced delicate, swooshed, and stark lines across the old man's brittle chest. Ruby droplets welled up in the stylized runic pattern of the bone god symbol. The man whimpered and flinched throughout the cruel tattooing, wailing as the claw pierced deep with a flourishing finish. Stop squealing, vermin! We must have proof of our divine favor after all. The commanding tone took on a note of satisfaction as if admiring its work. Now, I may currently be willing to indulge this little plan, but there is always the risk of an outface. It's a god's prerogative to be capricious, and we are quite fickle. So you'll want to move fast once you're freed. Quick, a rhythmic breath burst from the spittle-flecked lips of the old man as he nodded. <laughs> the coarse rope strung against his skin as the bone god toyed with the knots. It's important to understand the urgency of this, as my compatriots are strongly against this plan. There was an ominous cracking of bone as the voice grunted with exertion. I am uncertain if I can hold them back much longer. It gave a deafening screech as the crunching bone grew abruptly louder. Ready yourself! The old man felt the warmth of his piss run down his leg as the voice began to hack and spit and groan. Now! It wailed. Now! The old man could not move. The furor of the bone god's internal battle whirled around him, and all he could do was shake in the black void of his world while it reached a fever pitch, when suddenly all fell into a silence that throbbed against his eardrums. Still he did not move, did not even breathe. The soundless stillness drew itself out in an eternity, and the old man's heart seized for a single agonizing moment. Came the quiet whispered growl from directly next to his ear, and the old man bolted, his unseeing eyes wide with abject terror, his legs and arms pumping frenetically, his feet stumbled, slapdashed against the uneven ground, his chest pounding, his lungs burning, and then he choked violently as the rough fibers of the rope still looped around his neck, bit into his windpipe, and crushed his larynx. The sudden force jerking him backwards and off his feet, rebounding him against the stone and dirt and grass of the clearing. The shock and adrenaline sucked him into a vacuum at first, and for one beautiful instant, there was nothing. Then the smug rising chuckle ripped through, and the old man's world alighted with pain, confusion, and horror. Oops. <laughs> the mocking laughter took on a slightly hysterical twinge, as though insanity crept around its edges. <laughs> Did you have a nice trip? The voices were harder to distinguish now. Perhaps his senses were failing from the stress and trauma, or perhaps they were never really distinct at all. So sorry. We never resist a good joke. The bone god speared the old man in the shoulder like a cube of cheese and lifted him back onto his feet. Oh, there now. Shake, Shake it off. off. Back at it. The claw flipped him around and nudged the old man forward. He stumbled dumbly, the adrenaline abandoning him with weak knees and nausea. Quick now. We haven't got all day. The old man stumbled forward a few more tentative steps, 
then a few more. And then he's racing again, heart pounding, head throbbing, the relief and elation booming in his chest and beginning to bubble up his joyful laughter, which never surfaces. The rope snaps taut, his mouth gapes into a horrified scream, and then he's wrenched backwards once again. His head cracks against the ground, his fingers grasp at the ground, digging deeply, fingernails bending and splintering as the rope snakes backwards, dragging the old man shrieking and writhing back and back and back towards the mocking insane laughter, towards the gnashing teeth, towards the brutal claws. The bone god lifts one massive paw lazily and lets it fall with a sound like the smashing of a melon. It draws back, flicking a cloudy white eyeball off the end of one claw. I enjoy it so much more when they have hope.